Hello, and welcome to Simple Pursuit, the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our prayer that you will grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that you will be blessed and challenged as you listen in. Grab your Bible, because here is today's teaching. Take your Bible and open to the book of Exodus. Second book in the, in the Bible, if uh, you're not too sure of where that might be. If you find Genesis, keep going one more, then you're there. Don't go past that. If you hit Revelation, you definitely went too far. So as we get into Exodus, uh, what's going to be for a while, we're going to see how God is always moving His people forward in this story of the grand narrative of Scripture and what God is doing and how He's doing it. He's always moving His people forward. In this, in this case, he's moving his people forward out of slavery into becoming that great nation. As you study biblical history, especially in the book of Exodus, you'll discover the real, the real hero of the story is not Moses. That's what Hollywood would have you believe. But the real story is not about Moses. The real hero of the story is God himself. For he is the God who reveals himself to Moses as the great I am. We'll get there. He is the God who hears the cries of his people in bondage. And takes pity on their suffering and raises up a deliverer to save them, whose name happens to be Moses. He is the one who will visit the plagues upon Egypt, who will divide the Red Sea, and who will drown Pharaoh's army. He is the God who provides provides bread from heaven, called manna, and water from the rock, more than once. God is the one who provides all of those things along this journey. Not only that, he will also give us the law on the mountain. And that law and that covenant of that law is so vitally important to the story of salvation. He is the God who will fill the tabernacle with His glory. I mean, a tent. He is the one who will dwell with His people. From beginning to end, when you study the book of Exodus, it is a book that is God-centered. And it is rich in theology and history. When you read Exodus, it is therefore to encounter God. We encounter His presence. The book is about His mercy. The book is about His justice. The book is about His holiness. The book is about His glory. The book is about a God who rules history with His sovereign power. The book is about a God who saves the people of His covenant. When the Bible, the biblical writers, like in the New Testament, recall the Exodus, they rarely go to Moses, but rather they go and speak of the workings of God. And so that gives us a picture of how we should come and approach the study of Exodus. We want to pay close attention to what God is doing and how God is at work. And how the book is showing and how the story is telling about the character of God and how he works in the lives of his people. We also must come to the book of Exodus and see it Christologically or understand how the book of Exodus relates to us and relates to Jesus Christ. Not how it relates to us, but how it relates to Jesus. For all of the story of Exodus finds its meaning and its final interpretation like the rest of Scripture and the work of and the person of Jesus. 
Exodus is the gospel of the Old Testament. It's rich in gospel theology. Its connection to Christ is, is, is extremely important. Even Jude, the little bitty letter right before Revelation, tells his readers that Jesus delivered his people out of Egypt. The Bible also says that after the resurrection, when Jesus is talking to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, where does he take them? He takes them to Moses. Back to Moses. And that's where he begins, with Moses and all the prophets. He explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. And so if Jesus began there, shouldn't it be good for us to do so as well? Absolutely. That's why the Exodus. That's why we go back there to find out all of these things and remember, again, all of the times that God has intervened for his people. And when you read the Exodus, you'll find there's some similarities between Moses and Jesus. Moses is a, he's a kind of savior. He's a type. He's not the fulfillment of it, for sure. That's, that belongs to Jesus Christ. But there are God's people needing a ransom. There are God's people needing redemption. There are God's people needing deliverance. These are all words that the New Testament would use of what Jesus was doing and why he would come. And so there, there are many, and I hope to bring out the connections with Christ to show that Exodus is not just a story of salvation, but it is the story of salvation for you and for me. And that in this book, even though it's the second book in the Bible, and it's way back in history, and it may have some weird things that we don't completely understand how they happened, it is a story for us. It is also practical. Paul, the Apostle Paul, would use the story of the Exodus to help the church in Corinth understand what was going on and why they needed it. If you read 1 Corinthians chapter 10, for instance, you will hear how the Apostle goes on to explain that despite the fact that God saved the people in the wilderness, the Israelites would, would constantly, you'll hear this again, constantly turn away from God. And because they kept turning away from God, eventually they perished in the wilderness and that generation never got to see the promised land. But he finishes that thought in 1 Corinthians 10 by saying this, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. We're going to find out how all of those things work together for us. But Paul was putting together what had happened in the Exodus and applying it to the church, which is for us. It is for our spiritual benefit that we read this book, this story. It is a story of the Christian life. So at Coastal Oaks, we're committing ourselves to cultivate deeply rooted missionaries that will be called Oaks of Righteousness or Righteous Oaks that would be planted by the Lord that he may be glorified in Rockport and Fulton. And the Exodus tells this true story of how God, our God, kept and continued his covenant promise. The promise he made to Abraham continued through Isaac and Jacob and now through his people in Egypt. That God decidedly redeemed his people and moved them forward, eventually planting them in the promised land where they themselves would grow deep roots because of his covenant blessings to them and upon them, leading all the way to the cross. So as we get into the book, this amazing book of the Exodus, along the way we'll find a princess who goes down to the river to clean up and there her heart is won by a, a little baby boy in the cries of the abandoned 
baby in the basket in the River Nile. We'll encounter a bush on fire, but not consumed. And out of that bush speaks the voice that changed the course of history. An unarmed shepherd that walks out of the wilderness to do battle with the most powerful man on earth. The people of Egypt will wake up with frogs in their bed. I tell you, it starts raining. I'm thinking I may have some frogs in my bed because I hear them at night. We will hear the weeping of Egypt all over the land as they wake up and find a shocking reality has set in. We will see a whole nation walk through the Red Sea with walls of water on each side of them, walking through on dry land. We will see where God is put on trial and when the verdict is announced that he receives the judgment of the court. Amid thunder and lightning and thick cloud and an earthquake, the voice of God will boom across the plain. In the wilderness, a man will argue with God about the future of a people. He'll plead on their behalf before God and God will relent. The glory of God will come to the people in the tent. That all sounds like a Charlton Heston movie. Might be a good one to watch someday. But it's just a taste of the glimpse of the dramatic moments in the true story of the Exodus. This story is a, is a story that has inspired liberation movements all across the ages. From the pilgrims, the abolition movement in slavery in the 19th century, the civil rights movement in our own nation still today. The cry of let my people go has echoed, echoed down across the ages. But that's not why God gave us the story. God gave us the story so that we would learn about his covenant faithfulness. That God would remember his promise to Abraham because he is faithful. He gave us this story, this true account to show us that he has the ability and the power to deliver us. Because in his faithfulness, God acts to deliver his people from slavery into freedom. Not political freedom, not social freedom. Above all other kinds of freedom and other reasons we might want to be free. Freedom from slavery to sin. Bondage to the Egyptian gods who are no gods at all. Now they are free to live under the rule and reign of the one true and living, all-powerful I Am. He gave us this true story to help us understand the significance of sacrifice in the Passover and the substitutionary atonement that would become the Lamb of God. He gave us this true story so that we would begin to grasp His presence and see how important it is and how needed it is for our life each and every day. Because the story doesn't end with the crossing of the Red Sea. God's presence is made known as He moves them forward to what lies ahead. He gave us a story for, for us to understand service and worship. The word for slavery is the same word used for worship. They are moved from serving Pharaoh to serving God. From slavery to slavery. But the key difference is that serving God is true freedom. He gave us this to understand mission and purpose. That God reveals his name to Moses 
at that burning bush. And in, and in this story, in this book, he gets intimate and personal with Moses. Yet he also reveals his name to the world. And God tells Pharaoh that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God's people, through the law that is given, are to be a royal priesthood and a holy nation, displaying God's character, not just to Egypt, but God's purpose and mission is to the whole world. We understand also how the law helps reorder creation because the world is broken. And God gives Moses the law for his people. And that tabernacle, that tent of meeting is full of the echoes of Eden. As it preserves a blueprint of God's new creation that is coming. You see, our future world is woven into this story. So the Exodus is our story. It is for us. It is about redemption. It's not just a great screenplay to, show, to be shown before Easter. The Exodus is a story that sets on a path that eventually leads to this amazing climax with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus as our Passover lamb, whose sacrifice rescues us from judgment and death. And that his presence tabernacles with us, that he dwelt with us. It is an exciting, historical, and true story that always will point us to worship Christ. That's why it's our story for the church today. So let's look at Exodus chapter 1. We're going to work through this and a little bit into chapter 2 this morning. And I'm not going to read all of it in its entirety. Um, I want you to be doing that each week. Read, you can pr pretty much read the next chapter ahead for Sunday if you would like to. There will be some Sundays like in two weeks where we'll cover chapters 3 and 4 because that's one big story. So we're going to cover blocks of stories, not necessarily verse by verse or scripture or passage by passage, but story by story. Uh, because Exodus is a narrative. It is the story. And it's written that way, and I think it should be covered that way. So we're going to look at chapter 1 this morning. Here's the backstory, The backstory of what's happening. So when we look at verse 1, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. He's taking us back to what happened toward the end of Genesis. We need to be familiar with what's happening in Genesis in order to get into the book of Exodus. So that's actually an opening that is recorded from Genesis chapter 46. It's a list of the sons of Israel or the sons of Jacob. And so here's what's happening. In Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, right after the fall, God brings the judgment down and he looks to the serpent. And in that moment in chapter 3 verse 15, he says there that the serpent would bruise, that, that excuse me, the redeemer, a redeemer was promised in that moment and that he would bruise the head of the serpent and that the serpent would bruise his heel. And so there, from the very beginning, right after the fall, we see that there is a Redeemer that is promised that is coming. This story is a continuation of leading us to that moment when Christ would come. In Genesis chapter 12, we find a man. Now, I just realized I skipped over a whole lot of time there, right? You, got, you left out Noah in the ark. Okay, he's there too, all right? But Genesis chapter 12, there comes a man by the name of Abram. And God makes a covenant with Abram. And in that covenant, he says uh, this. Let me flip over there real quick. Genesis chapter 12. I've got it highlighted. Here we go. He says, as he calls to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be 
blessed. Okay, that's the covenant that God makes with Abram. And he renews that covenant in chapter 15 and he extends it again in chapter 17. Eventually, Abram becomes Abraham as God changes his name. But here is what what God was doing there. God was calling Abraham and Sarah and his family out of idolatry so that Abraham would know, obey and follow God. Okay, that is a covenant. It is a binding agreement between two parties. There is a people that is promised, a great nation. There is a land that is promised, the land of Canaan or the promised land. Most importantly, there is a seed that is promised or an offspring, a savior, a redeemer to defeat the old serpent or crush his head. God is promising to bless all the nations by fulfilling his promise through Abraham's family. The fulfillment of that promise is found in Jesus Christ. Nothing else but Jesus Christ. Why are they in Egypt? As the story goes along, he moves from Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob. In Jacob's family, there's a young man, one of his sons named Joseph. You remember that story, Joseph in the, in the coat of many colors. They are in Egypt because in that moment, when Joseph is young, Joseph was loved by his father. And his older brothers were a little bit jealous of him. Well, quite a bit jealous of him. And they tried to kill him. Well, they were thought of thinking about killing him. No, we shouldn't kill him. Maybe we'll just make it look like we killed him. We'll leave him at the bottom of this well. And surely he will die there. But yeah, you know, it won't be on our fault. His blood's not on our hands if he's in the well. He just fell in the well and he died. You know, Dad, we don't know what's going on there. But then there's one brother that takes pity on Joseph. He gets him out and he sells him into slavery. He sells them to these traders on their way to Egypt. That's how Joseph ends up in Egypt. Along the way, Joseph has some struggles, but eventually he gains favor in Pharaoh's court. And he ends up gaining so much favor. He's in prison. He's out of prison. But even then, he gains so much favor that he's basically the second in command in Egypt. And while he's second in command in Egypt, there's this dream that comes around. And in this dream... Joseph understands that there's going to be a famine and that they have a short amount of time to prepare for this famine that is coming, this incredible drought. It's not just specifically right there, but it's like a region-wide drought. And it's going to take everything they've got to survive. So Joseph comes up with a plan to, to store up all of this grain and store up all of this food for this drought that's coming. Well, fast forward another a couple of years and Jacob and his family, Joseph's daddy, Back, back home, they're in the same famine. They're struggling. They need to go to Egypt and find some food. And there in Egypt, they meet up again. That's at the end of, uh, of the book of Genesis. So fast forward now back into Exodus chapter 1. This generation has died. There are all, something like 400 years between the end of Genesis and Exodus chapter 1. It's been a long time. And there's things happening in Egypt during this time, such as the Pharaoh, when Joseph was around, has died, right? He didn't live that long. So now there's a new Pharaoh that, doesn't, that knows nothing of Joseph. Egypt has been through some struggles with outsiders invading and taking over. And now this new regime has come to power and they don't, this Pharaoh does not want any outsiders around. But yet there's this large number of people called the Hebrews. Where do they come from? What are they doing here? And they are growing in number. In fact, if you look at verse 7 of chapter 1, that's what Moses writes for us. The people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. There you see God's hand at work. Okay, They are growing in number. They are growing in size. One of the covenant promises is that Abraham's descendants would be a great nation. 
This is the start of that moment where they're multiplying and, and growing and increasing in number. They're growing exceedingly strong is what Moses says. And so they were doing what God had instructed them to do. But the problem is, is they're not home. This is not their home. This is not the moment that God, this is not the place God had promised for them. And so then we get to verse 8 and their people are in peril. There, there comes this awareness that they're, they're going to need God's redemption. They're going to need God's intervention. When we start this exodus, we see that the promise, the promise is always under threat. The covenant promise always seems to be under, under siege. If you go back again to Genesis, the, the famine that broke out, that was threatening Joseph, threatening his family, his father and his other brothers and their families. The promise is always under threat. Egypt survived because of Joseph's plan, because God put him in that place. Joseph was able to extend relief to his family. Even in the midst of, he didn't return anger and vengeance to them, but he, he extended grace and mercy to his family, to especially to his brothers. Four centuries later, Exodus chapter 1, the promise of this nation is being fulfilled. What was once 70 when Jacob and the family came over is now a huge number, but they're under threat. Look at verse 8. There arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. He's threatened. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. He's threatened by them. Here again, the covenant promise is under threat. Let us deal shrewdly with them, the Pharaoh said. You know, that, this is a part of God's plan. We need to understand what God is doing and how he was at work. These people of the Hebrews... They're growing in number. They're multiplying. I would argue they're comfortable. I would argue they probably don't know or are not aware that God had something else in store for them. And so what happens next, as Pharaoh says, let us deal shrewdly with them. In verse 11, let us set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. I would argue that if that doesn't happen, the Hebrews would just stay forever. God is at work and he's orchestrating the story to a point where they are going to begin to cry out to him. His presence was with them even in that hardship. And they would not have known God if they had stayed. They would only continue to worship the Egyptian gods, which will always be a struggle for them anyway. But the promise is under threat. So Pharaoh's plan is to enslave them because he's ruthless like that. That's what they did back then. Still even today, that happens. We'll set heavy taskmasters over them. Give them heavy burdens. Verse 12, he says, but the more they were oppressed, what happened? The more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. Do you know that that happens in the church today? You know how many people say, I sure hope the Rapture comes so I don't have to go through the tribulation. I think that's an American thought, by the way. 
Because when you go around the world and you see where the church is persecuted, the church is thriving. It's a biblical truth. It's a principle. Every time Pharaoh cranks up the heat on the Hebrews, Moses is quick to say, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. It's working against Pharaoh. You will see how God's hand works against Pharaoh all throughout the story. Pharaoh tries, God overrides. The more they were spread abroad, verse 12, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. Now it's not just Pharaoh that's scared. Now the Egyptians are worried. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and they made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. He's going to crank it up. But the more they're oppressed, the more they multiply, the more they spread. Notice it's a source of bitterness for God's people. But that bitterness would bring them to a place of Psalm 130, which is hear our cry. So the Pharaoh's next plan is quite sad. As a genocide of sorts. He commands the Hebrew midwives to kill every newborn baby in verses 15 to 16. Baby boy. Could you imagine living in that dread and that constant terror and fear? You had a 50-50 shot the last time I checked of having a boy or a girl. And all those boys, baby boys, would be slaughtered in Pharaoh's plan. God's people again are in danger. His promise is in peril. But then you come to verse 17 and you see where his... Uh, Strategery, to borrow a word from George W., his strategery is sabotaged. Look at verse 17. It's a key point in the story. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. But let the male children live. They were willing to defy the authority of the most powerful man on earth. And when challenged, you see what their reason is? The Hebrew women give birth before we can arrive. Pharaoh, they're just, whoop, they're popping them out and pushing them out before we could ever get there. They're strong. They're not like the Egyptian women. They're vigorous. So God dealt with these two midwives. He gave them a family. And you see again, at the end of the second level of persecution, you see the same statement in verse 20. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, not just the midwives. Here's the third level. He's, taking, he's cranking it up again. The Pharaoh commanded all of his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. A new strategy. Cranking up the heat. The promise, the future again is under threat. And yet God's plans, Pharaoh's plans are frustrated by God. There's some... And I see this 
in the Exodus, especially when you get to the plagues, how God works against the Egyptian system of gods. But the Nile was viewed as a god. Pharaoh was viewed as a god. The Nile is not only a source of water and for their crops and all of the things, it's convenient because everybody lives close to the Nile, but the Egyptians viewed that river as a giver and taker of life. And so what Pharaoh has done here, directing people, the people see themselves as, they're, as doing the will of their gods. And yet, our God, the providential hand of the God of the Hebrews, Yahweh, turns what is meant for death in the river into life. For this boy who was born in chapter 2. But God does that frequently in the Bible. If you think back for a moment. Noah. The ark. There's similarities in this story. That the ark and the basket that Moses has put into. Is the same word. Jonah. The Red Sea. Even the tomb of Jesus would become a place of life. Because that's what God does. He takes what's dead. And brings life to it. In and through Jesus Christ. You were dead in your trespasses and your sins, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which, with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. That's what God does. And in this moment, we see it right here. You shall throw them into the Nile, but here, into the Nile, this little boy named Moses, who has gone three months without being detected, hit by his parents, particularly his mother, she puts him into the basket, sends him down the river, hoping someone will find him. And who finds him but the daughter of Pharaoh? And as he's in the river, found by Pharaoh's daughter, in the little basket, a means of salvation and deliverance, Pharaoh's daughter arranges for the boy's mother to nurse him. Now, Moses' mother gives him up, puts him in the basket, sends him down the river. The basket floats down. Here's Pharaoh's daughter down on the river, cleaning up with her servants. Here comes the cry of Moses in the basket. One of her servants finds the basket and says, look at this. What, look what we found. Oh, wonderful. I want to keep him. His name's going to be Moses because I pulled him out of the river. Hey, go find me a Hebrew, mid, uh, mid, uh, a Hebrew woman to raise this child. Okay. All right. So God's at work. Here comes his mama. I mean, only God could do that. Okay. Only God could orchestrate that in such a way. She gave him up and yet here she comes. She's going to raise him. And at the proper time, she turns him back over to Pharaoh's daughter and he's raised in the house of Pharaoh. God's promises and his providence keep that promise alive. And his name is Moses because he's drawn out. He's going to be drawn out many times over his life. So despite being in Egypt, despite being oppressed, despite being threatened, 
despite being beaten time and time again, being, having hard taskmasters over them, God's people prosper because God is with them and His promise is there. Notice again, Exodus chapter 1, verse 7, 12, and 20. Every time the situation is dire, every time the, the heat is turned up on them with persecution, they're even, every time the ruler tries to systematically wipe them out, they don't, they're not wiped out, rather, they are prospering. And they do so because of His promise. They do so because God is with them. His presence is with them. They may not understand all there is to understand about that just yet. Moses certainly isn't aware of it just yet. But he's going to come to find out who's been behind the scenes all this time. When it leads us to clearly understand and conclude, one, God is faithful to keep His promises. This is some of the practicality we can take from Exodus. One, God is faithful to keep His promises. God matters as all throughout their history and even in today, the fragile nature of his people. And at times, what seems to be the fragile nature of the church, that we will be wiped out at some point, whether it's giants named Goliath and the Philistines, whether it's the Assyrians or the Babylonians or someone else, maybe the people of Jericho. It doesn't matter. But in all of these moments, God's people will turn back to him in this moment because they understand He is going to redeem them, right? They've got this. They, they, he's got this. They're going to turn back to Him time and time again. And there they will find hope because they remember God's promises. God is moving that story forward. He's moving their lives forward. He's moving us forward to where the cross comes, where His Son comes. And we have to always go back to Genesis 3.15 and remember the promise of the snake-crushing Redeemer. Their promise for the first time. And hundreds of years later, another king would order the slaughter of the Hebrew boys. The King Herod was his name. And he ordered the slaughter of every boy uh, Hebrew uh, under the age of two in Bethlehem to be killed. There again, when Jesus was born, was at that time, the promise was at stake. And everything going on in that moment, just as in this moment, had eternal, eternal ramifications as Jesus fell under that age. Yet his family escaped where? Egypt. So if our old enemy and adversary could wipe out Abraham's family, he would be successful. The snake crusher would not come. So the future of God's promise and the future of our salvation, Jesus Christ, was at stake. That king's plans were ruined as Joseph and Mary, Joseph was told in a dream to escape to Egypt and they left and he too would come out of Egypt to redeem his people. This is what we learn about God here. Part of God's plan and part of his promises is that he is, he is the redeemer. He's not just a redeemer, he is the redeemer. Listen to what Isaiah chapter 44 uh, verses 6 through 8 uh, tell us. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and the last. Beside me there is no God. Who is like me? Let Him proclaim it. Let Him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? There is no rock. I know not any. He is our redeemer. And the people of Israel, the people, the Hebrew people are going to learn that and come to understand that. 
That's part of the plagues. That's why they come. It's because God is teaching Pharaoh. He's also teaching his people. I am the last. I am the first. There is no one else beside me. He's also our protector. Listen to Psalm chapter 46, verses 1 through 3. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Do you, do you understand there that the people of, uh, of God would understand what they're saying when they sang that? They were to walk through the Red Sea. I would not imagine that those waters around them as they're on either side were calm. I would imagine that as that great wind came through and pushed those waters back, that God worked in that moment that that was probably, uh, I mean, they're in the heart of the sea, the roaring sea. But there he comes, he becomes their protector. Even at the beginning of Exodus, when Pharaoh's ramping up the persecution, ramping up, turning up the heat on slavery, turning up the heat and, and trying to kill their children, and their, their sons, even then God is protecting them. And we see that because of Moses. And the story of how he's rescued, which leads me to the last thing that we understand thus far is that he is our rescuer. He is our rescuer. Psalm 71, 4. Rescue me, O my God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of the unjust and cruel man. Rescue me, O my God. God is faithful to keep his promises, which means that you and I today still, we must trust God and trust in his purposes because as we trust him, it enables us to obey him. Trusting God and the promises that he gives us in scripture are so vitally important. The old hymn I sang as a, as a kid growing up in church with something like that. Faith is the victory. Oh, glorious victory that overcomes the world. It's not, it's not the concept of faith. But it's faith and trust in Jesus that brings victory. Because in Jesus, as we prayed through Wednesday night in Romans chapter 8, because of Jesus, we are made as the church more than conquerors. And God's purpose for Israel was to change them so that they would know him, trust him, and obey him and worship him. That they would leave the Egyptian gods behind. And through knowing him, trusting him, obeying him, and worshiping him, they would then reveal to the world the one who is, who was, and who will always be. So that the world too would know Him, trust Him, and obey Him, and worship Him. So we say, trust God and trust in His purposes. What is His purpose for you? Well, in Christ, Paul tells us that he says this in Romans chapter 8. He says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. Square that with what you read in Exodus chapter 1. Square that with what you read in the rest of Exodus as they continue to struggle. But here's what he says. He continues. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. You hear the purpose for you that God has is to conform you to the image of his son. Christ likeness and for you to grow in personal godliness. 
That's his purpose for you. To transform you and shape you. So that you would know him, trust him, obey him, and worship him. And the question then becomes, as God is moving time and history forward, will you, are you trusting God and his purpose? And so that means, in the end, you are faced with a choice. And when faced with a choice, you should fear God, not man. The midwives, go back to the midwives for a moment. They feared God. For them, God was held in higher importance than the most powerful man on the earth. William Gurnall said said it this way. He said, too often, we fear men so much because we fear God so little. But hear what Paul says to the church. Am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Friends, you can't do both. So, as we get into the Exodus, we trust God. We continue to move forward, trusting that He is moving us forward according to His plan and growing in Christ's likeness and personal godliness. And that as we trust God, we remember that He has promised to fill the earth with the glory of Christ. That day will come. And oh, how we look forward to it. Because Jesus has promised to build His church. And building His church, He will do. And so, we press on. And we keep looking forward to what lies ahead. Thank you for listening today. For more information regarding Coastal Oaks Church, like service times, or what to expect upon your visit, go to our website at coastaloakschurch.org. May God bless you in the journey and the simple pursuit of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord.